Welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles. At the 2019 annual conference, bio members who'd published books over the last year gave a reading. The event took place on May 17, 2019 at the Fabri Mansion in New York City. Introductory remarks were made by incoming bio president, Linda Level. Welcome to the 10th annual bio conference. We're very excited to be celebrating our 10th anniversary. Um, I am Linda Level. I was co-chair of the program committee for this year's program, and in two days I will become president of the organization. Uh, but I have, oh, thank you. <laughs> and this is, I think, the fourth year that we've been doing this Friday night reading where we have um, up to 15 people read for three minutes from their new book. And this is only open to people who have a book published in the last calendar year. So since June 1st of 2018, um, this is, I think, a wonderful occasion. It's what bio is all about, um, to celebrate books. We all know what it is to write a book and how exciting it is, whether it's your first book or your 10th book, um, to have a new book come out. So this is, occasion is in honor of that. Um, I have one announcement to make. Um, please pick up your name tag if you plan to go to the reception following this at 6 o'clock. The name tags are on the table as you come in. This is your ticket to enter the reception. So um, with that, and no further ado, we will begin with the readings. Um, I have arranged them as I have in the past in chronological order according to the birth date of the subject. (laughs) So not according to the author, (laughs) thank goodness, Um, but um, according to the subject. So this is the biographer in me that wants things in chronological order. So our first reader um, is Catherine Reef. Um, this is also, she comes out with a new book just about every year. So welcome, Catherine Reef. Thank you. If the world is a stage and I merely an actor on it, my part has been strange and alas, tragical. Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. Mary Shelley had been dead for a year when her son unlocked her portable desk and found the remains of a human heart. The heart he knew had been his father's. It had rested in the desk for 30 years, unseen and untouched, since the day in 1822 when Mary Shelley tenderly wrapped it in pages of poetry and put it away. Dust and bits of dried up muscle were all that was left. The heart was a relic of past love. Like a powerful storm, this love had rolled through Mary Shelley's life, forever altering its course. For love of the poet Percy Bysshe Shelley, she turned her back on her family and gave up her place in the world. 
She sought bliss and she found it, but she also found heartbreak that no one could have foreseen. Suicides, drownings, and children born and lost. If a writer were to pack all this misfortune into one novel, readers would close the cover and complain that the book was too far-fetched. But real life is more incredible than anything a novelist can invent, even one like Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. In 1816, when she was 18 years old, Shelley wrote Frankenstein. Her tale of dead flesh brought to life still frightens and fascinates readers today, 200 years after it first appeared in print. Victor Frankenstein and the monster he built remain two of the best-known characters in literature and film. Stories, even hideous ones like Frankenstein, are never created from nothingness, Mary Shelley believed. The storyteller draws on memory, on chance occurrences, on things read and overheard. From this chaos, she weaves a tale. Everything must have a beginning, Shelley wrote, and that beginning must be linked to something that went before. I did not make myself the heroine of my tales, she stated about her writing. I could not figure to myself that romantic woes or wonderful events would ever be my lot. Well, this book tells the true story of Mary Shelley from its beginning and with something of what went before. Was she the hero of her life's tale? That is for you, the reader, to decide. Our next reader is John Cagg, hiking with Nietzsche on Becoming Who You Are. He here? Okay. Um, then we'll go to Julie Dubrow. Um, after Emily, two remarkable women and the legacy of America's greatest poet. Mabel Loomis Todd stared unhappily out the window, her eyes filled with tears. The beauty of the May afternoon was heart stopping. Though the morning had been hazy, by midday the sun had broken through brokering a quintessential New England spring day. Newly opened lilac and crabapple blossom filled the air with their scents. The most deliciously brilliant sunny afternoon, she noted. Yet how, Mabel wondered, could such beauty exist on this day? She dressed with care, knowing that soon she would be among the Dickinson family and other neighbors, and that she would see the woman whom she referred to in her diaries and journals as my dear friend, Miss Emily Dickinson. Five years had passed since she'd met the Dickinsons, whose wealth, many civic and artistic activities, and long-standing ties to Amherst College made them one of the most influential families in town. Time had taken its toll. So much had happened, so many complications. The drama with Ned, the Dickinsons' eldest son. The unexpected death of little Gib, youngest of the three Dickinson children. And then there was her relationship with Emily's brother, Austin. The gathering at the Dickinsons was bound to be fraught with unspoken tensions. Babel carried with her a small bouquet of flowers, wildflowers, some of Emily Dickinson's favorites. She had painted a panel of Indian pipe wildflowers for Emily several years before. That without suspecting it, you should send me the preferred flower of life seems almost supernatural, Emily had written. And the sweet glee that I felt at meeting it, I could confide to none. 
Mabel had copied the note in its entirety into her journal, noting that it made me happier than almost any other I have ever received. Mabel thought about other notes and gifts she had received from Emily, their shared love of nature, and above all, their love of words. She thought of the many hours that she had happily spent at the homestead playing the piano and singing. Emily always rewarded Mabel's music with small offerings, a glass of wine on a silver salver, a flower from her conservatory, a piece of cake. And sometimes there was a poem, usually impromptu, evidently written on the spot. Brought up to appreciate great literature, a careful and voracious reader who kept lists of all the books she'd read, Mabel knew that Emily's poetry was unique. She was keenly aware that while Emily's style and punctuation was nothing like that of the well-known poets of the day, her verse was nevertheless strangely evocative and full of power. But despite these feelings of connection and friendship over the past four years, despite the frequently exchanged notes and gifts, despite living at home separated by less than half a mile, and despite the many connections between their two families, in fact, Mabel and Emily had never actually spoken. During all of the many times that Mabel had come to the homestead, Emily had listened hidden from view. Once or twice, Mabel thought that she had caught a fleeting glimpse of the mysterious Emily flitting down the hall in ethereal white. This fine day in May might have been the only time that Mabel was truly ever to see Emily. And when she did see her that day, it would be for the last time. For inside the homestead, surrounded by family, Emily Dickinson lay dead in her white coffin, a little bunch of violets along with one pink sapridium around her neck. Next is Anne Boyd Rue, Meg, Joe, Beth, Amy, the story of little women and why it still matters. Hi, so I think of this as a biography of the book Little Women. I talk about how it came to be, the life it lived over the course of the 20th century, and its cultural significance still today. And so I'm going to read a little bit from chapter two, where I talk about how she wrote the book from her life, how Louise Malcott uh, sort of incorporated aspects of her life. When asked to write a novel for girls, Alcott had decided to base it on herself and her sisters, thinking, our queer plays and experiences may prove interesting. Upon completing the novel, she reflected, we really lived most of it. Having first discovered her true style by writing uh, letters for her book, Hospital Sketches, she again wrote from her own life, creating the most lifelike book for children that had yet appeared. As a result, she became a celebrity, not only as the author of Little Women, but also as its protagonist, Joe March. Early reviewers assumed that the novel drew on the author's life, and readers often wrote to Alcott as if she were Joe herself. The publisher also promoted the association of the Marches with the Alcotts, using one such fan letter as an advertisement. It began, Dear Joe, or Miss Alcott, and continues, We were also disappointed about your not marrying Lori. <laughs> Alcott even liked to call herself Joe and later added an notations in her journal about which episodes had informed scenes in the book. For instance, next to a passage about living in a Boston apartment and writing to support herself, she wrote, Joe in the Garret. In writing to fans, she referred to her family as the Marches and to each of her three sisters as the names of their fictional counterparts. Anna became Meg, 
Lizzie became Beth, and May became Amy. This connection between life and text would be carried through the many biographies and retellings of the Alcott story that began to appear immediately after her death. It is safe to say that Alcott's family and her experiences inspired many of the characters and episodes in Little Women, especially in part one. However, the full story of their lives could not be represented in a book for young people, containing as it did extreme poverty, religious radicalism, marital strife, suicidal thoughts, and possible mental illness. Louisa had a much rougher time of it than Joe ever did. Still, the great charm of the book remains its realism, which is based on the pranks, dreams, and growing pains of four very real girls. As Alcott says in Little Women of even Beth, the most seemingly idealized of the novel's characters, she was not an angel, only a very human little girl. Probably the most surprising fact about the Alcotts, contrary to the cozy ideal of home and family life immortalized in Little Women, is that the family moved incessantly, over 30 times before Louisa was in her mid-20s. Not only that, but the Alcotts were many times temporarily separated and occasionally in danger of being broken up altogether due to her father's instability. In 1842, when Louisa was nine years old, Bronson's close friend, Ralph Waldo Emerson, wrote of him, he is quite ready at any moment to abandon his president residence and employment, his country, nay, even his wife and children on very short notice to put any new dream into practice. By then, Bronson had already left on numerous travels, as he would many times more. Thank you. And next, um, I'm pleased to say that out of our 10 readers tonight, three have published books, their books outside the United States. So next, please welcome Monica Zormick. And I won't try to translate the title. Um, I'm sure Monica will translate it for us. Thank you. The title is actually, uh, I'll say it in Spanish and I won't translate it, but I will translate what I'll read. Don't worry about it. So the title of the book is, La vocación desmesurada, una biografía de Alberto Archunov. I wrote it in Spanish, and I translated a little paragraph, a couple of paragraphs to read today. Abraham von Gershon Gershunov arrived in one of the hundreds of ships that made shore in the Argentinian coast at the end of the 19th century. He was a seven-year-old youngest child in a Yiddish-speaking family that hailed from the Russian Pale. Before long, Probably while still in the immigration station, he became Alberto Verchunov. Soon afterwards, in the Jewish agricultural colonies of the Pampas, he chose Spanish as his language. From then on, new name, new language, his life can be told based on achievements, excelling in the most prestigious high school in the country, publishing in the most modern newspaper in all of Latin America before the age of 18 editing a newspaper before 20, authoring a bestseller before 30. The story of his life can also be narrated through his relationships with celebrated friends and pen pals, Jean Jaurès, Marcel Proust, Jorge Luis Borges, Gabriela Mistral, Victorio Campo, Stefan Zweig, Waldo Frank, Pablo Neruda. His will, preserved in the judicial archive of the city of Buenos Aires, in the avenue of the immigrants, very close to the place where he landed as a child, renders a sense of the path his life took. He didn't bequeath property, but literary works, 
and immense cultural contributions in books and newspaper articles. In a society such as that of Buenos Aires, always so attentive to French culture, Gertrunov proclaimed himself a passionate reader of Spanish literature very early. Don Quixote was his guide, his repose, the book he would go back to. He enrolled quixotically in all the causes he considered just. Cuban independence, the Russian Revolution, the Spanish Republic, the independence of India, the creation of the State of Israel. He vehemently criticized anti-church violence during the Mexican Revolution, segregation in the United States, Argentina neutrality in the two world wars, fascism and Nazism. A self-declared citizen of the world, no political struggle he deemed just was foreign to him. A child of the doomed Jewish world of Eastern Europe, he painfully watched it come asunder and devoted the last few years of his life to the creation of a homeland to house the survivors of the catastrophe. Our next reader is Holly Van Leuven, um, Ray Boulder, More Than a Scarecrow. I'll start by mentioning that in 2014, I had the honor of receiving the first bio Hazel Rowley Prize for Best Proposal for a First Time Biographer. And I am equally delighted, humbled, and shocked to bring you the finished book to the conference this year. <laughs> Thank you so much for all your support. It would not have happened without you. For the cover of this book, I chose a photo of Ray Bolger rehearsing the Broadway show By Jupiter. It was the last original musical put together by Rodgers and Hart. It should be noted that both before and after his appearance in The Wizard of Oz as the Scarecrow, Ray Bolger was a Broadway star. He also had a very tough but loving and supportive wife of 57 years, Gwen, and they all figure into this little section about the demise of By Jupiter. By Jupiter could have enjoyed several hundred more performances, but Bolger informed the company in May 1943 that he would be leaving the show, citing exhaustion. Buster West was floated as a possible replacement, but in the end, the show could not continue without its original star. The entire cast was outraged by the news but no one more so than Richard Rogers. In his eyes, Bolger was destroying a successful show out of selfishness. Responding to an announcement of the show's impending closure in Ed Sullivan's little old New York column for the New York Daily News, he sent a rebuttal, which Sullivan published. He wrote, by Jupiter is shuttered, so Bolger is a loafer. I read it in your column, but it's stuff you shouldn't go for. <laughs> Let's read that line correctly. Here's the way it should be uttered. Bolger is a loafer, so by Jupiter is shuttered. P.S. Gross last week, $21,655. Performers out of work, nearly 100. Love, Richard Rogers. <laughs> by Jupiter closed on June 12, 1943 after 427 performances. Despite the public backlash for his perceived laziness, Bolger kept up his facade. Variety reported that Bolger was headed to Hollywood for recuperation. 
stopping along the way at the Marine base in the Mojave Desert to entertain troops. In reality, this was a practice run for Bolger's next stint in the USO. Ray Bolger vacationing at Arrowhead, intent on staying in California all summer, Variety said on June 30th. Three days later, unbeknownst to the media, Bolger boarded a military plane in San Francisco bound for Hawaii. He was now the manager and one half of Camp Show number 89. He and British-born comic and pianist Little Jack Little would tour the South Pacific, the first entertainers to do so. Gwen, Bolger's wife, stayed at her mother's home in the Fairfax section of Los Angeles and began writing letters the moment after Bolger's departure, informing her inner circle of the truth. In her message to their good friend Meyer Davis, the band leader, she wrote, I don't think Mr. Rogers will be writing any more jingles for a while. I wonder if he has the grace to be embarrassed. Um, next up, someone all bio members know, um, Brian J. Jones, Becoming Dr. Seuss, Theodore Geisel, and the Making of an American Imagination. So Holly took us to 1943. I'm going to bring into 1954, <clears throat> where Ted Geisel, a.k.a. Dr. Seuss, has been challenged by the publisher William Spaulding to write me a bestseller a first grader can't put down. The catch, however, is he can only use the pre-approved, educator-endorsed word list of about 300 words or less. You may not deviate from the list. All I needed, I figured, was to find a whale of an exciting subject, which would make the average six-year-old want to read like crazy, he said later. But none of the old dull stuff. Dick has a ball. Dick likes the ball. The ball is red, red, red. Instead, he was thinking up much more exciting subjects, like climbing Mount Everest, where he suggested it could be 60 degrees below zero. It was a truly exciting idea, he thought. However, as he scanned the word list, he discovered you can't use the word scaling, can't use the word peaks, can't use the word Everest, you can't use the word 60, and can't use degrees. When stymied, Geisel would kick back in the chair at his desk and chain smoke for hours as he stared absently out the window at the Pacific, waiting for inspiration. Other times, he would simply doodle, drawing one crazy creature after another to see if anything sparked an idea, or lay down on the sofa in his office and thumb through books and magazines. <laughs> Copies of On Beyond Zebra were still, were still stacked on his coffee table, and Geisel thought at first he might write a story about a queen zebra. I snuck a look at the word list, he said. Queen and zebra weren't there. It was, he said, an impossible and ridiculous task, but he would keep trying. Geisel had been staring at Spaulding's word list for the better part of a year, still looking for something to jumpstart his imagination, but the words still weren't coming. Some afternoons when Helen, his wife, came into the studio to check on him, she would find him lying on the couch, moaning or thrashing about, <laughs> as if he were trying to physically force an idea into his head. Sitting for an interview in early 1956, Ted often hinted that he was at work on three supplementary textbooks for the first, second, and third graders. Most of that was untrue. He was barely at work on one. Spaulding would likely have been heartened at the way Ted passionately explained the objective of his textbooks, which was to make their first ex experience in reading pleasurable, not difficult. Unfortunately, the noble motivation wasn't making the writing any easier. It took me a year of my getting mad as blazes and throwing the thing across the room, he said. Stuck, he decided to make another quick pass through the list. I finally gave it one more chance, recalled Geisel, and said, if I find two words that rhyme and make sense to me, that's the title. 
But even that approach didn't work out as he had hoped. A tall ball wasn't all that encouraging as the subject of a children's story. And other words that seemed promising for characters, such as daddy, didn't rhyme with anything on the list. I was forbidden to use any words beyond the list, Geisel said later. I almost threw the job up. He went back and read the list one more time, slowly and more deliberately. And then suddenly, there was his story in two rhyming one-syllable words. Cat. Hat. And like a genius, Geisel said later, I said, that's the name. Next is Marsha Biederman. She's reading from Popovers and Candlelight, Patricia Murphy and the Rise and Fall of a Restaurant Empire. It was exactly one week before Thanksgiving, 1961. The windows of Macy's flagship store in New York's Herald Square would soon be festooned with more than 100,000 red and green Christmas ball ornaments and three miles of tinsel. Store holiday displays all over Manhattan were going to be unabashedly traditional, ending years of experimentation with modernist and Asian-inspired themes and prompting a newspaper to, to declare, it's chic to be corny. For now, other delights enticed passersby from behind the plate glass. Mannequins wore botany knit jackets over knee-length skirts, the Jackie Kennedy look. Guitars and Hammond organs were arranged under a banner announcing that the kids from The Sound of Music would take part in the Macy's Thanksgiving Parade. Two windows on Broadway showcased washer dryers, hi-fis, and TV consoles. The one-stop shopping craze had seized the suburbs, and even here in Manhattan, Macy's boasted of carrying everything from rings to refrigerators. On this day, November 17th, Macy's had something extra. An entire window on 34th Street was devoted to the display of a single book whose author would autograph copies at Macy's that evening. The title was Glow of Candlelight, and the author was Patricia Murphy, a restaurateur, or restauratrice, as her publisher described her, who over the previous three decades had opened five restaurants in greater New York and Florida. All had thrived. Still, an entire Macy's window was a lot of hoopla for the autobiography of a woman known best for her popovers. Airy rolls served from bottomless baskets by roaming attractive popover girls. <laughs> by 4.30, two hours before the autographing session in the book department, Kay Vincent, the author's publicist, was a smartly dressed mass of nerves. Not that she displayed any as she left the department store's executive office. Everything was ready for the 5.30 press conference that would precede the book signing. Patricia's catering staff had laid out china, silver, a sumptuous buffet, and of course, orchids. The author, Kay knew, would be oh so slightly late for the press, though her Manhattan penthouse was just a short limo drive from the store. As one of Patricia Murphy's pilots would later say about her penchant for flying short distances more easily driven, with Patricia, it was all about the arrival. Kay passed the typing pool, blowing kisses to the clerks. Everybody knew her. 
She had headed up Macy's Public Relations Department until the previous year. She rode the escalators down to the fifth floor, digging in her purse for the notes given her by Patricia, a warm friend and congenial drinking buddy, but a demanding client. Even the trip's horticulture editor, though mesmerized by Patricia's gardens, found her to be, quote, an intense lady. Next up is Kavita Das, poignant song, The Life and Music of Lakshmi Shankar. Uh, Lakshmi Shankar uh, was a Grammy-nominated Hindustani musician who was part of the movement that brought Indian music to the West uh, with her brother-in-law, Ravi Shankar, the famed uh, Indian sitar maestro. Uh, she also lent her voice to the award-winning film, Gandhi. Uh, and I'm going to read from the first chapter, which is about that. The screen lights up again with the billowing flames of Gandhi's funeral pyre, and through the spirals of fire and smoke, we get a hazy view of a vast crowd seated on the ground around the pyre. Wafting in the background are the strums of the sitar and sarod. The scene shifts to a sunset sky over the Ganges. At the center is Nehru, played by Roshan Sait, along with some of Gandhi's closest allies, aboard a ferry boat. Nehru is holding Gandhi's ashes in an urn. As Nehru pours Gandhi's ashes into the still waters of the Ganges, illuminated by the sun's last rays, the strains of the sitar are paired with Gandhi's powerful words. When I despair, I remember that all through history, the way of truth and love has always won. There have been tyrants and murderers, and for a time, they can seem invincible. But in the end, they always fall. Think of it, always. The screen fades to black, and Gandhi's words and the accompanying music fade to silence. After a second's pause, the screen lights up one final time with the film's credits. As the first names roll across the screen, Lakshmi's lone voice, unaccompanied by any instruments, begins to sing a Hindu bhajan, beloved by countless Indians, including Gandhi himself. As the credits continue to roll, male vocalist Asit Desai begins to sing Gandhi's favorite bhajan. After the first stanza, Lakshmi joins in. Then, in the final two minutes of the film, we are treated to a string orchestration of this bhajan, which suddenly morphs into an Indian folk version with flute, shanai, and tabla goading it along to a faster and faster trance-inducing uh, tempo. In the midst of its acceleration and building crescendo, the music suddenly slows and the instruments fade to silence. And then, just as it did in the beginning of the film, Lakshmi's clear, melodious voice, at once as old as Hindustani music, yet as fresh as a stream flowing from the Himalayas, sings one final soulful rendition. The final credits come to a standstill on the screen and then fade to black as they follow her voice into silence. Lakshmi's voice is the moving finale to a prolific film about the most famous Indian of the 20th century and perhaps of all time. Just as it does in this film, her voice has played a part in key cultural moments in the past century, especially given her role as a leading Hindustani female singer in the movement that brought Indian music to the West. But to truly understand her significance in the meandering path that Indian music took across the world, one must follow Lakshmi's own journey, one that started as a dancer, not a singer, one that started in India, but ended in the US, and one that touched every note in the scale of life. Thank you.
And next up, we have our first, um, in this context, our first reading by two authors of the same book, um, Nigel Hamilton and Hans Renders. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. It was in the spring 2017, after talking for more than 10 years with Nigel about biography, I asked Nigel, Nigel, how, how many letters has the alphabet? And he said 26. So I thought that's a good start for a book. We start to write a book every month. We, uh, each of us wrote an essay. And as you know, the year contains 12 months, but with Christmas we have extra time. So in one year, we uh, wrote 26 essays and the result is the ABC of Modern Biography. There's also a Dutch edition, so it is much more complicated than I am telling uh, you, but Nigel will read now some paragraphs from the, uh, the essay from the M. Thank you, Hans. Uh, this was a pretty tough task <laughs> to write a complete book in one year. Never done it before in my life. M is for memoir, memoirs and autobiography. Memoir is the bad boy or girl of modern literature. It is a genre invented by the late 20th century in 10 parts, four parts entertainment, four parts narcissism, <laughs> two parts self-help. It has nothing to do with biography. <laughs> it cannot be quoted by a biographer save in assessing the self-image of the author since it is unverifiable. Often it is not even written by the author, but constructed with the help of a ghostwriter. Its purpose in any case is not to be read as historical evidence, a matter best left to memoirs two distinguished birth mothers, autobiography and memoirs, plural. Nevertheless, memoir does represent a fascinating case of modern literary mutation. It became almost instantly the darling of professors of English who despaired of students' unwillingness to read or discuss long novels by Dickens, George Eliot, Thomas Hardy, or Joseph Conrad. It even helped spawn a new teaching module, creative nonfiction, in which students could themselves try their hand and for which they would need professorial guidance, uh, credits, perhaps even counseling, <laughs> if the memoir went too deep. For memoir, singular, is both autobiographical porn and autobiographical pain. If this seems harsh, it is. Memoir should never be confused with biography and its inclusion in the would-be new academic fields of life studies and life writing is at best unfortunate. In an age threatened by alternative facts, fake news, bogus blogs, and website mendacity. Memoir is radioactive material. <laughs> Seen dispassionately, however, memoir is a fascinating phenomenon. 
one that is interesting both to analyze on its own literary merits and to compare with other literary modes of expression, from the fictional novella to the narrative of dreams, in an era of ever-expanding individualism in the West, it has inspired some fine writing and, like film, often been revelatory in terms of human experience, highlighting harrowing supposed secret d'alcove, pace charcoal, that were long hidden from child rape to child soldiers. Good or bad, works of memoir have offered contributions to modern writing, to narrative structuring and to expressive, sometimes impressive, linguistic, linguistic skills. They are also contributions to our understanding of modern culture and mores and of the psyche. They are not, however, contributions to biography, whereas autobiographies and traditional memoirs, plural, are. You've been listening to readings from bio members at the 10th Annual Bio Conference, which began on Friday, May 17, 2019, at the Fabri Mansion in New York City. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles. Enzo De Palma created our theme music. Until next time, thanks for listening and enjoy your day. <laughs>